Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. Now, dear ones, last week we began to lay out how Jesus Christ is the eternal lawgiver of the new covenant. And part of the evidence for that we saw was that Mark, or excuse me, not Mark, but Matthew portrays Jesus as meeting the people of God up on a mountain once again, just like Moses did, the lawgiver under the old covenant. Now today, we're going to see further evidence that Christ is the lawgiver as he states, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And so today, we're going to see that Jesus will instruct us that murder ultimately originates in the heart and that you and I, because we have hatred, even hatred in our heart towards someone else will make us guilty before the eternal judgment. And so, dear ones, today this teaching by Christ shows us I think not just how serious hatred in our heart is, but how we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're not murderers at heart because we've not physically murdered somebody. So by Jesus upping the ante here on what murder is in the heart, he shows us ultimately that we need a heart transplant, a conversion of the heart that only Jesus Christ under the new covenant can perform. And so today, as we look at verse 21, Jesus now is going to show us just what God's standards are for moral obedience, and he's going to be using murder as the first sinful issue of discussion. Notice what he says here in Matthew 5.21. He says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, dear ones, let me pull up my pointer here for just a moment. I wanted you to notice that when Jesus talks about the ancients, he certainly referring to Israel. Israel was the nation that heard from Mount Sinai the words that were given to Moses, including the sixth commandment here found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. And here, I do like the New American Standard Bible when it says, you shall not commit murder. The King James Version, if you have that in your arsenal of Bibles, it says, thou shall not kill. And unfortunately, that term kill, I think, is wrongly interpreted because there can be moral killing. And sadly, some jurists, I'm sure, throughout the world have said, hey, I don't want to sentence someone to death because, after all, the Sixth Commandment says, thou shall not kill. Well, technically, thou shall not murder is what it says. The term in Greek here, phonuo, is a good rendering of the original Hebrew, ratzak. So if you read... Exodus 20.13, Ratzak has to do with immoral killing, where typically the term for general killing, harag, is used for just generic killing, although there is some overlap. And so what is murder? Well, murder is immoral killing, killing in and beyond the boundaries of what God allows. And so think about it. God does allow some killing to take place. He allows the government to restrain evil by dishing out capital punishment to murderers. We know when a soldier has to shoot a terrorist, he's not murdering the terrorist, he's killing the terrorist. We also know, and we're going to talk about this, by the way, more when we get to that section about turning the other cheek, there are times for self-defense as well. And so, yes, murder is immoral killing. And the proof of that is, notice here in the underline, Jesus says that the Israelites had heard that those who murdered would be liable to the court. Now, the term court there that you see in the underlying crisis literally means the judgment. The judgment in the Old Testament for murder, immoral killing, 
was capital punishment, the death penalty. In fact, I want you to see this for yourself. Turn your Bibles back to the law of Moses. Turn to Numbers chapter 35, verses 30 through 31. Turn your Bibles to Numbers 35, 30 through 31. Now, as you're turning to Numbers 35, 30 through 31, a couple of reasons I want you to turn there. First of all, you'll see that someone who was accused of murder could not be prosecuted unless there were multiple witnesses. But second, you're going to see that there was no ransom that was allowed for a murder. Why? Because the life of a human being made in the image of God is so precious. Notice Numbers 35, 30 through 31 Moses wrote this, he said, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Now, stop there for just a moment. Think about even in the New Covenant, when we engage in church discipline out of Matthew 18, what is required but two or three witnesses? That comes, if I recall correctly, Deuteronomy 19.15, where every fact will be established by two or three witnesses. So we see the same treatment extends also to those who are elders in 1 Timothy 5. If we're going to be accused, it has to be by two or three witnesses. Okay, so that's the principle that you see throughout the Scriptures. Now, notice in verse 31, he says, Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. There was no ransom that was to be allowed for those who would shed the blood of innocent life. Why? Because every human being at the moment of conception is an image bearer of God. And as image bearers of God, you and I are to be protected by the state, by the government, and there should be no harm that's ever done to someone physically who is an image bearer of God except those who live immoral lives and murder. Now, What's interesting is when you look at cultures that don't have a high biblical view of morality, they often will allow murderers to go free. How many in here have ever heard of George Gascon? George Gascon is this prosecutor from Los Angeles County, and he is a Marxist. And as such, he sees the people who are in jail as the have-nots and the rest of us that they are abusing as the haves. And so he doesn't see something biblically. He, back in November of 2021, let out a murderer who had only served six years of a sentence for taking the life of a person made in the image of God. And so as we see cultures become pagan, they will get rid of the death penalty. But dear ones, you and I have to have a justice that comes not from the Marxist, but rather from Jesus Christ. No true justice that God ordains says that murderers shall not live because he takes seriously the life. In fact, I want to cite here Genesis 9-6. I want you to realize that not just the Old Covenant, but even the Noadic Covenant prescribed death for the murderer. Remember Genesis 9-6, God said, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. We see that in the Noadic Covenant, we see it in the Mosaic Covenant, and we see it under the New Covenant. Doesn't it say in Romans 13 that the government does not bear the sword in vain? It does. And what does that mean? It means that they can use it to put to death the murderer. Brothers and sisters, you and I have to have a biblical worldview, a true justice that comes from God, and truly valuing human life is seen in putting murderers to death. 
Now, as we come here to verse 22, Jesus, who is truly God, will demonstrate that he is the new and eternal lawgiver, and he's going to show us what the core issue of murder really is. Notice what he says. Verse 22, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, dear ones, notice the saying where Jesus says, But I say to you. That's Jesus showing us that he is the eternal lawgiver. But here, I don't think Jesus is taking issue with the interpretation of the sixth commandment, but rather he is pulling the rug out from underneath those who think that they have not transgressed this law merely because they have not physically taken the life of someone. Rather, he is showing that even anger and contempt in one's heart can make us guilty before God. In fact, notice the term anger here, or gizzo, the idea is literally being wrathful. Now, we know from the Bible that our God is certainly a God of love, but we also serve a God who is wrathful towards sin. In fact, Romans 1.18, remember it says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So yes, God is a God of wrath. And you might say, well then, hey, if we're made in his image, why is it wrong for us to be angry or wrathful? Well, again, later in our messages in the Sermon on the Mount, I'll talk about times where it is good for us to have righteous anger. But remember, when God has anger and wrath, because he is perfect and holy and he is omniscient and knows all things, his wrath and anger is never capricious. It is always just. Whereas many times, probably most often, when you have anger and wrath as a human being, it is often capricious. It's motivated by selfishness and self-interest rather than the interest of others. And so oftentimes we see in the Bible that anger is something that brings the destruction about for an individual because within anger breeds contempt and hatred for others. And again, in the heart we become murderers before God. In fact, I want you to turn, if you will, to Proverbs 16.32. I want you to see some of the wisdom literature on the importance of mastering anger. Please turn your Bibles to Proverbs 16.32, written some 900 years prior to the birth of Christ. Proverbs 16.32, please turn your Bibles there. Now, as we're going to read this, I think we probably have something called synonymous parallelism, where both clauses say roughly the same thing. Notice here Proverbs 16.32, the first clause says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Stop there, mighty what? Probably a mighty warrior. That's probably the implication. But notice the second clause is roughly parallel. It says, and he who rules his spirit, the implication is better than he who captures a city. So think about how elevated the warrior was in Israel's culture. Can you imagine how important the warrior was who can protect your town? your nation, they could subdue the enemy's land, they could subdue the enemy's capital, but the man who could subdue his own anger is greater than that. That's how bad anger is. Why? Because it breeds contempt and hatred for others made in the image of God. And therefore, it must be subdued. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching us here in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Now, if you're a note taker, you don't have to turn to it, but jot this down, Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11, it says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Dear ones, you and I are called to subdue our anger. Being a hothead is not a moral good or good attribute to have in either the Old or the New Covenant. Now, notice here, he's very specific that everyone who was angry with his brother, and the term brother there, Adelphos, I think certainly means not a physical brother, but by the way, we don't want to be angry with our physical brothers or sisters either, but it certainly has to do with a believer, a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, some have concluded from that, it doesn't matter if we're angry with the unbelievers. I would put the brakes on that idea because later in verses 43 through 47 of Matthew 5, we're to treat others outside of the faith, we're to treat them good as well, not to do harm or to have hatred for them as well. Now, I want you to notice again, just as we saw in verse 21, Everyone who is, has angry to, or is angry towards their brother is guilty before the court. The term court is crisis again. Through this passage, there seems to be an ascending order of judgment. In other words, you go from the court, then you go to the Supreme Court. Does everyone see that? Well, then you end up going to fiery hell. Now, isn't it interesting, even though there's an ascending order of judgment, there is no ascending order of offense. And so what Jesus is showing is where this hatred and contempt in our heart for others made in the image of God ultimately goes. Where does it lead us? Well, it can lead us to the very judgment of God. So that's why he says, hey, if you say you good for nothing, you can be guilty before the Supreme Court. The term good for nothing there, raka, you could literally render it empty head. Um, This is bad slander. And what can that leave you liable to? Well, to be guilty before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, the term there is actually the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was comprised of 71 individuals. It was the highest court in Israel, comprised of chief priests, teachers of the law, scribes. Of course, it would be presided over by the high priest. And so Jesus is saying, if you even say, Raka, you good for nothing or you empty head, to someone, you're guilty enough to go before the Supreme Court of all Israel. Now, here's the point. Notice he says, but whoever says you fool, morose, really the term that we have for moron, that's where it's derived from, well, then you're guilty enough to go to fiery hell. Well, let me ask you, is saying you fool worse than saying you good for nothing? Is that Jesus' point? No. Jesus' point is to show you that contempt in your heart and hatred in your heart for others is enough to lead you to the judgment of hell. Hell here is the lake of fire. The lake of fire is taught by Christ. It's going to be taught again, by the way, in Matthew 10, 28. This is the lake of fire that every unbeliever will be sentenced to as we see in Revelation 20:15. It happens right after the millennial kingdom. Every unbeliever outside of Jesus Christ will one day be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the grand point is that Jesus is making here is that simply because you haven't committed physical murder does not mean you're off the hook morally before God. If you have contempt and hatred in your heart towards another person made in the image of God, God sees you as a murderer at heart. Now, this is important, I think, for two reasons. Number one, it shows us that the true moral of standard is for, of God is very high. 
The true moral standard of God is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our might and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And we should come away from that saying, you know what, I can't do that. I've never done that perfectly. And that's the point. The second point in all of this is to show us that what we desperately need to be right with God is a heart transplant where you and I have a heart that loves our God and loves our neighbor. Therefore, what? We don't want to hurt our neighbor. We don't have contempt for our neighbor. And this is a heart change that only Jesus Christ can affect in the new covenant. Now, as we get into verses 23 through 24, we begin the first of two little scenarios on reconciliation. We'll see one scenario on this slide, and then in the final verses, one more scenario on reconciliation. Now, why is reconciliation important? Well, reconciliation is very important because it quenches the hatred that we have in our heart for other people made in the image of God. When we reconcile to someone that we're at odds with, our bitterness and our contempt for them is quenched. And so that's why Jesus is talking about the need for reconciliation here. Verses 23 through 24, he says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, dear ones, notice here in the underline where Jesus is talking about presenting our sacrifice at the altar. Remember, the altar that he's referring to there is certainly the altar in the temple at Jerusalem. Well, let me ask you, what audience is Jesus speaking to? Where are they? Well, they're in Galilee. They're 80 miles away. So in this scenario, the idea would be the person who is in a squabble with another person has to, because of the squabble, leave the altar, travel 80 miles back to Galilee, reconcile with the person they're angry with, and then go back and give their sacrifice. Now, is Jesus thinking that people are going to do this all the time? No, this is hyperbole. But the point is that it's exceedingly important to reconcile with others. Why? Because, again, it quenches the hatred in our heart. It quenches the contempt that builds up and it brings us back into a right relationship with those that we're at odds with. Now, notice this phrase where he says, if you're what, your brother has something against you. What's being envisioned here is that there's been some breach, and it's mutual. There's mutual animosity by both camps, by both people. There's animosity. And so notice he says, first be reconciled. Here is an imperative command. To be reconciled, literally in the Greek, means to be no longer at odds. Now, we are to be commanded to be reconciled precisely, again, because you and I don't want to be those who have hatred building up in our heart. But I also want you to think about how this is something that's important for us uniquely as believers. Why? Because it's us as believers in Jesus Christ who have been reconciled to God. Later in our application, I'll talk about how hollow and hypocritical our message of reconciliation is to the world if we can't reconcile with mere mortals. No, dear ones, you and I have to be those who are about reconciliation, not holding grudges. It is never a virtue in the scriptures to be a hothead 
to not let bygones be bygones and to hold on to grudges. No, the virtue in the scriptures are those who will reconcile, patching up a relationship and quenching the desire to get even and the contempt in our heart. And so this is why Jesus comes to a second scenario showing the need for reconciliation. Now listen to a second scenario here. Verses 25 through 26, he says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now, brothers and sisters, notice here in red where it says make friends. Literally, the term uneo means to come to an agreement. Come to an agreement. Now, why is that important in this scenario? The scenario that Jesus envisions is that of an Israelite who has a plaintiff against them, and this plaintiff is probably bringing them to court because they have not paid their debt. In the ancient Near East, in Israel, if you could not pay your debt, you could be thrown into debtor's prison. And once you're in debtor's prison, you're not going to get out of there until you've paid the last cent. And so do you see then how important reconciliation would be? The point of both reconciliation illustrations is to show that reconciliation is always better than allowing our desire to get even and our anger to destroy us. That's the idea. That's the point of the reconciliation scenarios. Now, while this last illustration, I think, seems very specific, remember it happens so often in Israel that I think Jesus could use it as just a general principle because it happened all the time. No, it's better to reconcile than to be thrown in court and have to pay the very last cent. That's the idea. Dear ones, anger, contempt, and hatred towards other people is something that makes us guilty before God. What Jesus is doing is he's showing us that the root of murder comes from the heart. And ultimately what that drives us towards is the need to have a new heart by the new and eternal lawgiver, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can be given a new heart where we do love God with our, all, with our whole being, and we love our neighbor as ourself. That's where ultimately this is driving. Now, let me come to a couple of points of application with you here this morning. Number one, we must know that sins like murder originate in the heart and that the heart can only be transformed in Christ. Now, remember, when I say in Christ, I'm talking about being in his camp. The moment you trusted upon Jesus Christ by faith alone, you were put in his camp forever more secure. But it's in the camp of Christ where you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Paul says in Romans 12 too. And it's there where we grow and we learn to love the Lord, our God, and to learn to love our neighbor. Number two, since we have been reconciled to God, we must take reconciliation with others seriously. How incongruous is it to have God reconcile us as enemies to himself through the death of his son, but we won't reconcile with others. Well, of course, it's hypocritical. And so that's one of the points I think Christ is driving at as well. So let's begin with number one. I want to begin showing you here in Matthew that indeed our sin problem is really a heart problem. 
It's not some rote, external, we didn't follow the rule, but rather it's a heart problem where we don't love the Lord our God and we don't love neighbor as ourself. And Jesus, remember, starts teaching this idea in Matthew 15. He teaches it earlier. But in Matthew 15, he comes to a great illustration that proves his point. I talked about three of those verses last week. Remember in Matthew 15, that's where the scribes and Pharisees, they are angry with Jesus' disciples because they don't wash their hands prior to eating. Well, let me ask you, what passage under the Old Covenant required you to wash your hands prior to eating? And if I played the Jeopardy music for five hours, you would still not come to the right answer because there is no command that says the normal common folk have to wash their hands prior to eating. So where did this law come from? It came from the traditions of the scribes and the elders. They were pitting their commands against God's. And therefore, the Holy One of Israel was no longer the lawgiver they were. And they were commanding, you jump through our hoops, you answer to us, ultimately not the scriptures of the living God. That's the problem with legalism. Now, notice here in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Jesus is explaining to Peter and the disciples where sin ultimately comes from. Notice he says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Now notice, first of all, in this text, Jesus is very dogmatic that nothing that goes into the mouth that goes into your stomach is going to make you what? Defiled ceremonially unclean before God. So if you don't wash your hands prior to eating, you may get the case of the tummy rumbles, but you're not sinning before the Lord. Are you with me? So then he gets into what is it that defiles the man? Well, it's that which proceeds from the heart. So it's not what comes in as far as food, but it's what comes out that comes from our heart. Now, the heart here of course, is being used as a metaphor by the Jews for the center of our thought life. Now, the Jews knew that the heart was an organ that pumped blood, but they also used it for the center of our thought life. And by the way, sometimes you'll have modern-day critics of the Bible say, well, that's one reason we can't trust the Bible. Look, it, it uses the heart in this way. But we use heart the same way as a metaphor in our English vernacular in America. We'll say, hey, that football team played with a lot of heart. Now, how many pick up the phone and call your local newspaper and say, hey, your sportscaster is claiming that the heart isn't the organ that pumps blood, but it's something else? Well, no, you don't do that because you know they're using it as a metaphor. In the same way, Jesus is using the heart as a metaphor for the center of our thought life. It is the center of our will, our emotions, and our intellect. And it is there that you and I sin. It is there that you and I are born sinners with a will, a mind that is in bondage to sin. So let's ask ourselves the question, when we think about the Mosaic Covenant, what was the frailty of it? We talked about that today in our Sunday school. The frailty of the Mosaic Covenant is that it could not quench our sin nature in the heart, but rather our sin nature co-opted the law and it used it to incite further sin. 
So this is why we needed a new covenant. Under the new covenant, we are going to be given a heart transplant whereby God is going to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves, deposit within our heart the love of God and the love of neighbor. That's what the new covenant is so, this is why it is so needed. You and I, brothers and sisters, need a change of heart. Now, what's very interesting is this change of heart under the new covenant was promised all the way back in the law of Moses itself. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy 10.16, in fact, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10.16, you're going to see that God starts to allude to this need for a changed heart. He uses the term circumcised heart. So again, please turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10.16. Now, what we're going to look at is the command by God for the Israelites to circumcise their heart. What does it mean to have a circumcised heart. It means to have a heart that is one that can function and relate to God in both faith and obedience. An uncircumcised heart is a heart that cannot relate to God in faith and obedience. It is a dead heart, as it were. So to have a circumcised heart is a responsive heart to God in faith and obedience. Notice Deuteronomy 10.16, he commands the Israelites, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Notice the synonymous parallelism again of both clauses. To stiffen your neck no longer means you have a responsive neck that will turn to God. To have a circumcised heart means one that's responsive to God in faith and obedience. They're saying the same thing. Now, isn't it interesting here, God is commanding the Israelites under the old covenant to do something that they can't do. He's commanding them to have a heart change, and they can't do that. And you might be sitting in your seat saying, wait a minute, Eric, you're saying that God would command us to do something that we can't do? Yes. And realize if you have that question in your mind, you are sitting in solidarity with Erasmus, who debated Luther, with Pelagius, who first debated Augustine. Remember, Pelagius said, how can God somehow command us to do something that we can't do? But dear ones, God does. In fact, we're going to see later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:48, Jesus is going to command all of us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, how many of you, when you read Matthew 5:48, it says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father, you say, you know what, that's it. Today, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going out of here, and that's it. That's all I need to do. And so if someone has a problem with you, it's on them because you're perfect, right? Well, no, you know that you can't do that. God is going to have to do that for you. And that's precisely the point. So I want you to see that in Deuteronomy itself, it anticipated the coming of the new covenant where God would circumcise their heart. Notice here on the screen, you don't have to turn to this one, I have this one. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Here we see the future restoration of Israel, predicted all the way back in the law. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The great promise is this, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Notice who is going to be the one who does the circumcision of the heart, taking our heart and making it responsive to God in faith and obedience. It's not us that can do it. God is going to do it. What's the result of it? Well, we're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart implied is also we're going to love our neighbors ourselves. Now, what's the ultimate purpose of it? It's so that we may live. 
There's where we have eternal life, God forgiving our sins and creating a new heart within us. Dear ones, this is the first promise that we see in the old covenant that God is going to do a heart transplant for his people under the new covenant. That is why the new covenant is different. Remember, God said it would be different. Jeremiah 31, 32, it's different than the old covenant. In fact, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, verse 33. And by the way, for those of you that may be new to the Bible, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, is a passage that's about the new covenant. It's a very famous passage that your pastor will often browbeat you over to understand. Well, Jeremiah 31, 33 is very important because it talks about the same heart change. So again, this is written some 500 years prior to the birth of Christ. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. The promise of the new covenant. The Lord says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Stop there for just a moment. You and I primarily are Gentiles in here, although we have some Jews. One day God is going to bring in mass all of Israel as a nation to faith in the Messiah. That happens in the 70th week of Daniel. So this is still going to occur in our future where they will be grafted back into the olive tree, as it were. All right, so notice he says... But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice he's going to write on our heart the very law of God. You and I from the heart will believe and obey. Because God will circumcise it and make it responsive in both faith and obedience. Dear ones, this is exactly what Paul is alluding to in Romans 2, 28 through 29, a great passage that shows us the profundity of the new covenant and the deficiency of the old covenant. Notice Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Stop there. How can Paul be any clearer that physical circumcision will do you no good? Being born a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not a sin, but at best it will give you a cup of coffee. It will not save you. It will not redeem you. It will not make you more holy. But what does matter? Notice verse 29. He says, but he is a Jew who was one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Does everyone see this promise of circumcision that went all the way back to the law is about this regeneration where we had a dead heart that couldn't respond to God, but all of a sudden, notice it says, by the Spirit, we were given a new heart, one that came to faith in Christ and a heart that started to love God and love neighbor. And notice it was by the Spirit, that's the new covenant. It was not by the letter. Notice in the underline, the letter there is shorthand for the Mosaic covenant. So you really have two covenants contrasted. The Spirit in the new covenant contrasted with that of the Mosaic covenant. Dear brothers and sisters, what we always needed was a heart transplant. And praise be to God Through Jesus Christ, he came to give us a new heart that would be responsive for the first time. Perhaps there are some here today or that are listening online, and truth be told, you need a heart transplant because you've never come to faith in Christ.
You've been trying to work out your salvation. I want you to know that today, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, not only are you given the atonement, the expiation and propitiation of your sins, your sins are removed, God is appeased, not only are you promised everlasting life and a resurrection, but you're also going to be given a heart transplant where you're for the first time going to start loving God and loving neighbor and growing and being transformed by the power of the Spirit. That's the great hope that we have in the new covenant. As Jesus teaches us what murder is truly about, that it comes from the heart, that's what he's driving us to. One of the grand points of the Sermon on the Mount is we need him. Don't come away from the Sermon on the Mount with either air. Don't think, hey, I'll never do these. No, you will by the power of the Spirit. But the other air is to say, I can do this. No, you need a Savior. You need a heart transplant. That's the point. Okay, now, the second application point that I want to talk about today is the need to be reconciled. Jesus gave us two scenarios on reconciliation, and it's important because it protects the heart of both parties that are involved in the dispute. But another reason why it is important for believers in Christ to be reconciled is because we have first been reconciled to God. And again, how hypocritical is it if you and I have been reconciled as enemies to God that we wouldn't reconcile with other mere mortals? Notice what Paul says here in Romans 5.10, what God did for us in Christ. He said, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, notice here, Paul is making the claim that you and I were enemies, not that we were just strangers, but that we were at enmity or warfare with God. We had committed cosmic treason and are rebelling against him. And yet, while that was true, here we have a divine passive. Notice in blue, he reconciled us. Reconciled us through what? The death of his son. It was a very high price that took us from being enemies and made us friends. The high price was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's death affects our atonement. There's two aspects of atonement. One is the removal of our sins. We often refer to that as expiation. But there's another aspect of atonement, which is propitiation, where God is appeased. Propitiation is God-centered. Expiation is man-centered. Atonement, expiation, my sins are removed. Propitiation, God is appeased. That's how you and I could be reconciled to God, no longer enemies. And so notice he also says not only that, but we can be saved by his life. How much more will we be saved by his life? What does that mean? It means later in Romans 8.34, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he lives to make intercession for us. So you and I don't simply serve a dead Savior, but one who's been raised from the dead and who's going to live forevermore to make intercession for us. That's what, what a great gift. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. So, dear ones, if you and I have been reconciled to God in that way, but we won't reconcile with someone else, a mere mortal, a fellow sinner, how hypocritical is that? And so that's why we have to consider the great ministry that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ have been given. Notice here in 2 Corinthians 5.18, we have this ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, no, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. We just talked about that through Christ and gave us the ministry 
of reconciliation. Dear ones, you and I don't wake up merely to an alarm clock, but the calling of being reconcilers between God and man. We have a ministry of reconciling God and man. So how hollow and empty will that ministry of reconciliation be if you won't be reconciled to someone else? A mere mortal or another mere, mere sinner like us. That's the point. Brothers and sisters, perhaps there are some here. Truth be told, you've been carrying a grudge. You've been angry and holding contempt in your heart towards a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, whoever it may be. Today is the day to say, I'm going to reconcile. I want to be reconciled to that person. I don't want to hold on to that bitterness and contempt. Now, later on in our Sermon on the Mount series, we will talk about times where we need to fight. Those, it says in Psalm 97.10, who love God, hate evil. It says that, by the way, in Romans 12.9 as well. And so, yes, there are times where we have to stand up to evil. We always can't be reconciled. But the majority of the time, we can't. And so we have to be those who don't let the picadillos of life when people hurt us in small and mundane ways to drive us to the point where we build a contempt and hatred and a bitter heart. Brothers and sisters, we need to be those who are reconciled. And so the last thing I want to leave you with before you go out the door today is I want to give you permission to be wronged. And I know you came to church today thinking, oh, I hope he gives us the permission to be wronged. I have not been wronged enough in my life. Well, I'll explain why I'm giving you that permission. Dear ones, what we're going to see in this passage is that sometimes it's better to be wronged than bring disrepute upon God's name. And so I want you to think again, what's the point of reconciliation? The point of reconciliation is so that you and I will not build bitterness in our own heart, but also we are going to be reconciled to others because we bear the name of Christ and we don't want to bring disrepute on his name. The illustration that I'm going to give to you is not about reconciliation per se, although it's tangently applied. But remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul was angry with the Corinthians because they had lawsuits with one another. And in a real sense, they were airing their dirty laundry before the unregenerate world. And Paul is saying, hey, how dumb is that? Here you, the believers, who are going to judge even the angels in the future kingdom, and yet you can't settle the simple disputes among yourselves? You're going to air your dirty laundry and bring disrespect upon Christ's name? Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, 5 through 7. Paul says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Verse 7, he says, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Dear ones, the point of this is that reconciliation allows us to keep anger from building up and contempt for others, which makes us a murderer in God's sight. And so, dear ones, today we have to come to grips with it's better for us to be personally wronged and to reconcile and not bring disrespect and disrepute upon Christ's name. Now, there are times where we will have to fight evil, and again, we're going to be talking about that in subsequent messages. But in the normal picadillos of life, you have to ask yourself, are you making a name for yourself, or are you making a name for Christ? Is the battle and the fight really worth the amount of effort that you're putting into it? 
Think about it. You and I as evangelicals rightly say the five solas, that we were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all by God's grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And if you and I will not be reconciled, if you and I will not be willing to be wronged at times, are we not really living for our glory rather than his? Brothers and sisters, let us be those who live for his glory with a pure heart. For we learn today from Jesus himself, the eternal lawgiver, that the root of murder, it stems from the heart. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you get to the heart of the matter as to what pleases you and what's sinful before you. And we do pray, Lord, that in the weeks, months, and years ahead that we have in life, that we would have a heart for you, that we would be not conformed to the image of this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we would really love you with all our being and that we'd love our neighbors ourselves, that we'd be those who are willing to let bygones be bygones, not harboring bitterness and anger, knowing that we've been reconciled to you even while we were enemies. We pray, Lord, that you give us a spirit and a heart for reconciling with others, protecting our heart against contempt and bitterness. Heavenly Father, I do pray also for our loved ones that don't know you, friends, neighbors, coworkers. We pray that you would regenerate their hearts before us. They would give us boldness and opportunity to proclaim your gospel so that they also may trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that they also may have the heart transplant so they may be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. I've been eating my spinach, so I do not need my readers, at least as far as I know. Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless all of you. Have a wonderful week.